listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Like the rest of you, I imagine, I've, I've watched more uh, news the last week or two, maybe more than I should have. <laughs> um, and, I, and I've also seen a lot of things said, oh yeah, some pretzels are being passed out. Uh, go ahead and open them up and have a snack. Um, we'll let you know about what's happening there um, a little bit later in the service. Yeah, it's kind of... Apparently all the sporting events have been canceled, so we, ha- we have our own concession delivery to make you, just in case you're having withdrawal from going to the sporting events. Um, so I was saying that I've seen a lot of Christians say lately, uh, don't fear, like don't be afraid. And I know that we get that in Scripture, like often the Lord kind of says that to us. Uh, but but I, want to, I want to be very careful to parse that out in, in ways that I think are very meaningful and very important. So you know that during the, time, the season of Lent, we remember Jesus' time in the wilderness. And there were those three major temptations that he had, right? Multiplying the bread, like turning the stones into loaves of bread. Uh, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, doing this kind of miraculous act and being saved. And then um, he was offered, if he would bow down to Satan, that he would become the king of the world, right? All these kingdoms will be yours. And all of those things end up happening later in the gospel story. Jesus multiplies bread and gives it to people. Jesus does all sorts of miraculous acts, calming the storms, walking on the water, Uh, healing the sick, uh, delivering the captive, casting out demons, right? And and then we know that he is announced at the end of the story as the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And so everything that he was tempted with at the beginning, somehow he actually gets to do or participate in later. So there's a little bit of, I think, some cognitive dissonance. Like, how could it have been wrong there? Why was he resisting temptation in that story? And how he's playing it out over here. This is why I think a certain level of precision is actually important for us. Thanks. Um, So, on the one hand, I can appreciate those comments that say, do not fear. But I want to differentiate between, like, an irrational fear that can debilitate us, like almost paralyze us, right? Versus a healthy, natural fear. Like, there's a good reason to fear some things. Like, if you're, if you're going too fast and, and your car starts to shake or you're going to lose control and you slow down, that's a good thing. You should be afraid, right? It, it, takes, it takes courage to do what we have to do in the midst of fearful situations. So all of us, you know, we came from from home today, and and maybe some of you experienced a bit of fear. You had to decide, you know, whether or not you're going to go out, you know, how much social distancing you were going to practice. 
I mean, I, I know, again, I've, I was talking to some of our congregants, and they have kind of self-quarantined because maybe because of their age or maybe because of a health condition. And I think that's a wise choice. Like, I think they made the right choice. It was a good thing to do. I also want to say that fear is natural, and natural fear can be good for us. So I don't think any of us who are here, or those who are watching at home for that matter, experienced fear today because they had to like walk around. Like you, this morning when you got out of bed and you went to the bathroom, you weren't like, oh no, I've got to make it all the way over to the bathroom. I hope I can make it. Right? But if, you get, if you're on a tightrope, if you're on a balance beam, then you would experience maybe some, some real right fear. It's, it's not fearful for me to step off the platform. That wasn't scary. It also required no courage. Courage is something that only takes place in the face of fear. Like that's, that's the only time courage makes any sense. Courage, bravery, is doing something when there is actually a real danger. And a pandemic is a real danger. And so we should use our common sense. And so if you hear a Christian saying, do not fear, hopefully what they mean is that we're not trying to shame you in any way if you're experiencing that natural fear. What we are trying to say is that kind of in spite of natural fear, we want to have courage to do what love compels us to do. And love might compel us to do things that we might not typically do. So let's say you know someone who is for their own kind of health, uh, self-quarantining, right? Maybe reach out to them and say, hey, can I, can I run to the grocery store for you? Or can I run to the drugstore for you? Like, this is an opportunity for us to express compassion in real and tangible ways that we don't always have. I'm not saying we can't always do those things. Um, one way you, you might show compassion to someone is if you have like 50 rolls of toilet paper and you know your neighbor doesn't have any, maybe share some. So I don't know if this is true or not. I saw it online. So, you know, some of those things are apocryphal. But uh, I didn't, didn't have the time to kind of check it out. But I saw that there was a man who had 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer that he had kind of scooped up and had in his garage, and his plan was to sell it at really kind of high prices. In times like these, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's trying to talk through the Corinthians apparently were struggling with their sexual morality. And some of them said, well, we, sh we should just all be celibate. That was the answer. Like, if we have sexual immorality, we'll just have everybody be celibate. In fact, at one point in that chapter, Paul refers to celibacy as a spiritual gift. 
right? It's not, it's not always in the list of spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing. Celibacy doesn't always make the list. But he does refer to, to celibacy as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians. I often ask my students at the college, I'm like, who, who wants the, the gifts of the Spirit? And they're all kind of raising their hands. I'm like, all right, raise your hands. I'm going to pray for you to receive. And they're all, their hands are raised. Raise your hands. No, you're like, there you go. Thank you. They all have their hands raised like this. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pray for you to receive the gift of celibacy. And boy, their hands come down really fast. I don't think the Lord's calling me to that life. Well, there's a really interesting phrase in the midst of, like, Paul's like, no, 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 that won't work. <laughs> we can't have everybody be celibate. Um, but he kind of says, if you're, if you're married, do these things. If you're not married, do those things. He says, if, if you are celibate, I mean, it can be, a, I, he's saying, I'm celibate. And I think that is one of the alternatives. Like, that's, you can, that's a gift of God, right? But he has this real interesting phrase. He says, in the present crisis, just remain as you are. So if you're married, stay married. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. But in the present crisis, stay as you are. Let me tell you, commentators have done backflips trying to explain that one. You, you, you would be amazed at how many different things people come, with, uh, come up with to say what the present crisis was. And I, there, there are a couple of them that I think are pretty, pretty good guesses, but I think most of them are just stabs in the dark. I think everyone who probably first heard that letter knew exactly what the present crisis was. If I said, today, in this present crisis, we should use our common sense, practice some social distancing, make sure we're caring for others. I didn't have to explain to you what the present crisis was. You all know what the crisis is. In fact, you'd like to get away from it. Maybe hear a little less from it. Maybe I should stop talking about it and talk about something else. But again, there's this kind of fine line between kind of natural fear, rational fear, and the fear that debilitates and paralyzes, right? One is normal, the other is kind of abnormal, and we want to walk that line. Water, of course is something that we all need. And the text uh, for today all deal with water in one shape or another. Some desire for water. And we, would, we all desire water. I mean, those of you who have eaten your bag of pretzels, maybe you're desiring some water. But you're going to have to wait a little bit. All right? But you eat something salty, and you're like, man, I wish I had something to drink. That'd be nice. So... The, the, the Old Testament passage for today is a familiar story. The Hebrews have come out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and they don't have enough to drink, and they're complaining to Moses, like, give us some water. And Moses call, calls the elders, and they pray to God, and he takes his staff, the same one that he kind of separated the Red Sea with, and he hits a rock, and water comes. But the, as the story gets told, it's, it's not a positive story. Because the place that, that they were at is then remembered later in Scripture as a place where the people complained. 
not as a place where people just received what they needed. So this is interesting, right? So on the one hand, we need water, and so asking for it makes perfect sense. On the other hand, our attitude matters. It's not just what we do, but how we do it. It's not just what we say, but how we say it. And we know this is true in our own relationships, right? We have to, we have to find ways to, to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. And, and sometimes just keep our mouth shut. Like sometimes that's the best way to love. You, you don't have to be the, the boss of everyone, right? You don't have to give the answer to everything. Sometimes it's best just to let things be. Our, our New Testament passage is, is, is a very familiar one as well. It's the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I love this story. It's, it's quite a long one. It's interesting. I mean, I've often heard some pretty negative things said about this woman. The text itself calls her the Samaritan woman, which I'm a little hesitant to use that language now. I mean, back then, maybe it was okay just to refer some, to someone by their kind of race or ethnicity. We're trying, we're trying better to work around those things these days. But <clears throat> it's not uh, without uh, note, I think, that that story falls right behind the story of Nicodemus. And then the two kind of, kind of beg comparison. So we have Nicodemus and an unnamed woman. He's Jewish. She's Samaritan. We know that he's the ruler of the synagogue, and she would never even go to a synagogue. She's of a different faith. He comes at night. She meets Jesus in the middle of the day. They both kind of have questions for Jesus, like, who are you really? Nicodemus is like, well, we know that you must come from God because we've seen what you can do, right? So he has a pretty positive statement of faith, I would say. Though Jesus challenges him and says, you know, you must be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus says, well, I, 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 can't, get, I can't be born. I'm, already, I'm too big. I can't go back into my mom. And Jesus is like, uh, are you a teacher? Because you should be able to understand metaphor better than that. <laughs> I think that's exactly what he means by that when you ask him if he's a teacher. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't speaking literally, go back into your mother. Uh, the woman at the well also has this kind of interaction with Jesus. Jesus is there, a place that uh, a rabbi typically wouldn't have been. They would have circumnavigated Samaria, moving from Jerusalem up to Galilee. Uh, it'd be hard to imagine what this would be like, but imagine you lived in a town where the south side was considered preferable. And downtown around, you know, Parker Street and Lighthouse, uh, it was considered like the rough part of the neighborhood, rough part of town. But the north side, it might not be as preferable as the south side, but at least it's not downtown. And then they actually built a road around so you wouldn't have to go through like the Polk Parkway. <laughs> right? So that, that's kind of what it was like. Like the north, the north was a little country. A uh, little Polk City-ish, Galilee, but it wasn't so bad. 
the south side, you know, Jerusalem was in the south. It was preferable. But man, that middle ground, you better stay away from that, especially at night. Get you in trouble. So Jesus ends up there, a place where we don't expect to see him. And it's in the middle of the day, and the woman's like, um, he's like, I could use a drink. And she's like, well, you're Jewish and I'm Samaritan, and, and we don't share utensils. Like, not because of us, but because of you. It's like against your rules. And he's like, well, that's true. But if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink. And you know what she said? It's one of my favorite bits in all of Scripture. She said, uh, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> like, this well is deep. <laughs> this is a deep well, and you don't even have a bucket. He said, the water I could give you is living water. You would never thirst again. And she's like, okay, I'll take some. Maybe she just had a bag of pretzels. I'm not sure. But she's, she's like ready, ready to receive from him. Now, I'm not sure if she's just trying to cause bluff or if she's, if she's actually moving towards belief. But she says, all right, give it to me. And then, you know, in classic Jesus style, he kind of presents her with this riddle. He's like, well, go, go home and get your husband and, and bring him back and I'll, I'll give you the water. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, that's right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're, you're living with now is not your husband. And she's like, oh, are you a prophet? Which, um, for a, a, a faithful Samaritan to say, is, is more... Um, more meaningful than what it might sound like. She's, I don't think she's just saying, wow, you kind of read my mail. Are you prophetic? Because unlike the Jews who believed in lots of prophets, right? Abraham was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. You had Elijah and Elisha and Nathan and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There's lots of prophets, right? In the Samaritan faith... They only believed in one prophet, and that was Moses. And Moses said, in what we call Deuteronomy 18, it's recorded that Moses was saying, there'll be another prophet like me. So the Samaritans were expecting another prophet. And so when she says, are you a prophet? I think she might be having this kind of major faith step towards Jesus. And so Jesus says, um, but she says, well, you're Jewish again, and I'm Samaritan, so you worship in Jerusalem, and I worship here at the well of Jacob, which we're going to come back to that, that part of the story here in just a minute. But, but Jesus says, look, the time's coming where it won't matter whether you're in New Jerusalem or here, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. She leaves her bucket which I think that's another very interesting part of the story. She doesn't even carry water back with her, not the water that she came for anyway. She goes into town. She tells her whole village, which was probably a crowd about this size, what had happened to her, what she had heard. And they all believed in Jesus because of her testimony. And the text says that. It says they came out to meet Jesus, the disciples were there, of course, and they got a little confused, as sometimes was their custom. 
They're like, um, were we supposed to go get food? I mean, why is he talking to her? You know, that was their response. But the village comes, and it says they all believed because of her testimony. And they stayed. Jesus stayed with them for a couple of days. And then it says, now we believe because we have heard for ourselves. But we first believed because of her testimony. This is a recurring theme in John's gospel where someone will say something about Jesus and other people will come to faith because of their testimony. Like John the Baptist says, behold the lamb, and two people come and believe. Other people are saying things, right? Come and see, and they come and see. But with this woman from Samaria, if, if we're measuring ministry by its size, she is the most successful evangelist in the story. Because her whole village believes because of her testimony. Powerful story. But I, I want to kind of go back and focus on that well. A well that Jacob had dug generations and generations before. And we've often said around here at Oasis that we are more kind of well people than we are fence people. Like, we're not exactly sure where our borders stop, but we know in whom we believe. Like, we don't have official church membership. That's kind of odd. Most churches do. So how do you know whether or not you're a part of us? Well, do you, are you, do you come? Do you listen online? Everybody. <laughs> right? Do you care about those that are here? Then you are, Right? We, we come and we gather around the well. I mean, it's an oasis. We even have a rock out there. And, and there's water that comes up out of it. Like water from the rock? That's just from this passage, right? Exodus, water from a rock, an oasis. Here we are. That wasn't an accident. Uh, water didn't accidentally come up out of that rock. That was planned. That's, that's, we, we do these things on purpose. We are Oasis Community Church. We believe in wells. Um, there is a poem, popular poem, by Robert Frost. We've mentioned this several times too, but it, it's worth repeating, I think, today. It's called Mending Wall. And it has a famous phrase in it that I'm sure you've heard of that says, Good fences make good neighbors. You've heard that before? Well, I don't know if that phrase originated from this poem, but I know this poem kind of popularized it, right? Good fences make good neighbors. And there's a certain amount of truth to that, I think. But this poem is not arguing for that. The poem is actually a critique of that statement. Listen to it. It's a, it's a little long, and I'll do my best to deliver it poetically. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on another, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made. 
But at spring, mending time, we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go to each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves and some so nearly balls. We have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay there, stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side, it comes to a little more. There where it is, we don't need a wall. He is all pine, and I am all apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do, you make, why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I would say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly. And I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there bringing a stone grass firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness and as it seems to me, not of woods only and of the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying and he likes having thought of it so well, he says it again. Good fences make good neighbors. So what is it that doesn't love a wall? What is it about nature that makes walls have to be made? What makes, and we're not talking about you know, the hunters that come through and knock the walls down, but, but when, when roots come up and the wind blows and the wall doesn't maintain itself, and what happens between neighbors when there's no need for a wall? When on one side you have apple trees and the other side you have pine trees, it's not like the apples are going to eat the pine cones or vice versa. And so that's where he says, why, why do we even need a wall here? Well, they make good neighbors, he says. He tries a little inception, right? Tries to Leonardo DiCaprio him, put a thought in his head. Well, maybe there's something else. I think that something else is the love of God. I think the love of God compels us to go beyond our borders and to care for those who we might see as the other. That sometimes having a neighbor doesn't mean making sure we have a stark boundary between us, but making sure that we just care for them. Maybe, maybe there are places in our lives where we don't need those boundaries. And that's what God is calling us to. It's times like these that our compassion calls us not to build walls, but to dig wells. I want us to turn, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me on this one. Well, we'll have it on the screen. It's Psalm 84. But man, I really love this. Um, we're we're, we're going to pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 12. Psalm 84. Happy are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of the anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, happy is everyone who trusts in you. It's, those, it's that first stanza that I read that I think is most apropos for our conversation today. The psalmist is on the move. He's going through the valley of Baca. He can see Zion in the distance. You know, sometimes you know, when I'm traveling, it's when I get close to home that it seems like that time uh, slows down, like on a long road trip. I'm like, I, I've been driving like nine hours, and it's that last 30 minutes is going to kill me. Because particularly, I'm often coming down 471. You know that stretch, that really long straight road in the middle of nowhere that gets us from here up towards the, the turnpike? Man, that's a bad road. But you get there, and you know, I, when I get there, I know I'm getting close to home. Somewhere along that road, it says, welcome to Polk County, right? The psalmist is at that spot where Zion is now in sight. He's close. But he doesn't just keep going. He doesn't speed up. It says God would have him stop and make a spring. Dig a well. Because someone else is going to come this way again. Someone else is going to live after us. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even just talking about our children but our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. Though a day will come when people reflect on what Christians did in response to the coronavirus. And will we have built walls that try and keep others out? Or will we have dug wells so that others who come after us may also drink? We all need it. And it's not the time for us to complain to God, where are you, why can't you do something better? It's the time for us to trust in God and believe that he gives us living water. And he calls on us to dig the springs so that when the rains come, there'll be plenty. Not for us. It's not for us. Because the psalmist is on the way to Zion. Right, the psalmist is going to Jerusalem. He's not going to camp out in the valley of Baca. But he knows just as he has come through there, others too will come. And that is quintessentially what it means, I think, to be Christian. Like that's how we practice the Christian faith, is in the care of the other. Tangible, practical ways. Something as small as an act of kindness, a smile, a wave, a text message that says, I was thinking about you. A prayer. 
food, clothing, groceries. This is who we are, folks. Uh, there's, I'll, I'll close with this. One, one, last, one last passage. Um, this is in Romans. It's the epistle passage for today. And it, it, it makes a metaphorical turn from what we're talking about, but I think it's important. It says, in, beginning in chapter 5, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. What do I have? Well, I hope that I can share the glory of God. That's, that's what I'm boasting about. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son... Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And I just want to highlight that verse 5, that hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. If I could be so bold as to suggest that the living water that Jesus was offering to the Samaritan woman was the love of God that would be poured into her heart. And that's what we live for. And that's how we live. That God's love, like water, is poured into our heart. And that creates in us a hope that we can navigate whatever it is that might be before us. A pandemic, the financial disruption that comes with such things. Let's resist the terror and the irrational fear of what if. Let's be careful not to shame ourselves or others about rational fears and respond to our situation with some common sense and some love and compassion. Let's be well diggers to provide not just for ourselves but for those who might come after us. And then let's get on to Zion. Amen.
We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.